Well, one day I was uh, giving a retreat in France, and uh, before the retreat, I asked Jesus to arrange that no one of these participants would be ever lost, but on the contrary, that during the retreat, they would um, all go back to him in repentance, in confession, in reconciliation, so that they may live in the state of grace forever. And sure enough, at the end of my retreat, one lady came up to me and said, Sister, well, everything you said was perfect, was okay, but, you know, as far as I am concerned, I have gone too far in evil. I'm a terrible sinner. I've done sin that are so terrible that you wouldn't even believe me. And because of this, I know I am damned. I know that there is no reconciliation possible for me anymore. I can't even go to confession. I, I just can't. I am suffering hell in my heart, and I know when I die that hell will continue. I said, but no, I tried hard, you know, to convince her that there is always a way out of sin for reconciliation with God. But she would not listen. She was kind of locked up into her problem. And I said to Jesus, Jesus, look, that cannot be. Remember the deal we made at the beginning of the retreat. What can I do now? What can I tell her? And for days and days, I would pray for that lady. And one day before the Blessed Sacrament, I received his answer. And this answer is this tape. How Jesus showed to me very, very clearly how himself in the past, he did everything with Judas to try hard to bring him back to him, to his heart and to the communion of his love. And he pointed out in the gospel all the passages in my mind, in my spirit, when he did that to Judas, how great his love was for Judas and how till the last moment he tried hard. He offered to Judas the possibility to return to him. And you know what a grace it is for me to proclaim the mercy of God today through this talk. You know, when spreading the gospel, we often speak of realities such as suffering, weaknesses, illnesses, and uh, physical or mental handicaps, and uh, that disastrous effect that our culture of death has on our generation, especially on the young people. But there is one topic that is hardly mentioned because we, we, we like to blind ourselves to it, and that is precisely the loss of communion with God. And this is the greatest calamity, the greatest catastrophe that we can imagine. How much I wish that my words today could reach all those among you, and there are many I know, I've heard that so many times, who say to themselves, I can't reach God anymore. Once I knew him, but afterwards I abandoned him. And now it's too late. It's too late. I've been too far in evil. And there is a wall between God and myself. I just can't find my way back to the Lord. It's too late for me. I'm, I'm lost. I'm lost. That's a profound tragedy, you know. You know, the greatest suffering that we can have on earth, the deepest distress we can experience is when we feel that our souls are cut off from God. 
And this is why I would like so badly to, to make her the cries of my brothers and sisters. I mean, those who have despaired of finding a way back to God. Yes, I would like to make heard their voices on the rooftops. Those who feel alone in the dark night and who think there will be no dawn. You know, one day I met a man for years. That man has not been able to reach out to God, even though he had been called and he had known the Lord. And he said to me very simply, The way things are right now, I can't reach out to God. I feel cut off. I wish I had brothers who would be willing to come down into my hell. That's what the church would be for me. I was, I was shocked to hear those words, you know. This is specifically the church, the church of ultimate love, the spouse that follows the Lamb wherever he goes, even into the depth of agony known to the human heart and so many human hearts today. Once I was uh, traveling to Rome by train and I found myself alone in a compartment with an Italian guy who was about 50 years old, and we began to chat. First, he did a little showing off, you know, like a good Italian that he was. But as we talked, our conversation grew deeper, and I saw his expression change. And he actually began to tell me the story of his life. He had been a servant of God during his youth, but now he was all spoiled by a classic uh, story of adultery. And since then, he had never returned to the Lord. And he had not been to confession for 20 years. And when this romantic interlude soured, he sank deeper into darkness, into heavy sin. And towards the end of our conversation, he admitted to me, You know, sister, I've never told this to anyone before, but... I'm hunted by all this. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of getting sick. I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid. You know, before I had inner peace, I lived in the light of my God. But now I just can't pull myself out of it. I can't approach God. I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid. I've got another example. I know a priest who has not been celebrating Mass for years. He doesn't pray anymore. He only continues to work in his monastery because he finds the work interesting. But he's like dead wood. I told him, try to pray. Just try to turn back towards the Lord. And his answer was always, no, I can't do this. I, I just can't do this. It's too late. You know, sister, when it's over, it's over. That is it. And his face was lined with grief. And, you know, these people can be counted in the hundreds, in the thousands throughout the world. Those who started out as the blessed of God, as the elected, as uh, Jesus' chosen ones, those who have known the sweet anointing of the Holy Spirit and how sweet it is to belong to the living God, but who one day have gone astray and who never found the way back to God. And now they see that their hearts have become like a tomb, a dark and dank prison. 
and they no longer have the courage to look within themselves because they know deep down inside that death reigns there. So they keep themselves busy and distracted with a multitude of activities in order to avoid this painful and scary confrontation with their true self. Isn't it terrible? And when can this pagan world of ours offer to such souls? This world cannot take them in nor help them. This world of ours is just powerless here. You know, you remember the high priest who said to Judas in the temple when he collapsed with remorse over his betrayal of Jesus, they said to him, So what? See to it yourself. It's your problem. You know, how can this world of ours, which is filled with unbelief, rescue anyone who live in such deep spiritual distress? It just cannot. Therefore, we who believe, we who are the church, how could we not be filled with urgency to proclaim the utmost mercy of God, especially toward those who suffer in the health of this world? Let me speak of one of the worst cases in the whole history of humanity, the case of Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Well, Judas was one of the twelve, and he had been definitely chosen by Jesus himself out of love. And we shall see together now how Judas, if he had not hanged himself, if he had lived until Pentecost Day with the other eleven, well, he could have very well been called the disciple whom Jesus loved. If anyone objects this, saying, uh, no, that is not in Scripture, sister, we need proof for it. Well, here are the proofs of the extraordinary love Jesus had for Judas. And I'll point out the sign of this love that the Lord showed for the most lost of his disciples. As we hear the stories of Judas, from beginning to end, don't we see foreboding walls rising around him? And this little child of God suffers agonies within those walls, like a prisoner who is dying of thirst. This is why the Lord asks us to lay dynamite to these walls. When we talk with our brothers who live in darkness, it seems to us that these walls stretched up to infinity, that they are so thick they are impenetrable. But the Lord responds to the workings of evil with all the workings of his mercy. For mercy is his dynamite, divine dynamite. No wall is so thick that it will not collapse before the Lord's compassion. Sure, it is easier for us to understand Jesus' mercy towards Mary of Magdala or towards this little Zacchaeus who became so great through his repentance. But... The case of Judas is even more beautiful. Now, I offer you to make a little experience together. I hope you'll follow me. <laughs> At this point, we can try to go down together somehow into Judas' private hell. I mean, into the, the prison of his heart. Let's pretend that we are watching a video together with sound and picture, a video of the heart of Judas. As for the sound, it's easy to imagine what we will hear in this video because there are two different voices speaking. First of all, there is that gentle sound of the voice of Jesus 
who is calling Judas, who offers his tender love to him. You know, that soft breeze of love murmuring in Judas' heart. But then, at the same time, we'll hear another voice, of course, that of Satan, that voice that cajoles, that ensnares soul in order to destroy it. You got the point? As for the picture, it's easy to. Actually, there are two kinds of light. First of all, there are what we would call spotlights with multiple colors, like those found in uh, some nightclubs or discos. For example, a red spotlight, a green spotlight, a yellow spotlight, they are blinding, they are like flashes from a camera, the evil one's camera, actually, coming at us from all directions, thoughts, fascinations, temptations, impulses, and these flashes of colored light come at us from everywhere and they seduce our very souls. But then, in the same dank prison, there is also a simple little night light, a humble and quiet little tongue of flame, the memory of Jesus' presence there. And this little night light lights up that slippery slope that leads down into the abyss. And uh, it reveals it, it shows it for what it is. It also lights up a staircase rising before us, but we can only see the first step of it. And we know that these steps lead up to heaven. They will take us to the exit from our prison out into the light of day, the light of life. Now, let us see how Judas acts in the various stages of the story. Well, at the hour of Jesus' passion, everyone is put to the test. Everyone is under attack. And this is the time when, even at the Last Supper, the Apostle managed to start squabbling as to who among them should rank highest, which one of them was the VIP, you know. And this is also the hour of Peter's denial. And as for the high priest, they go all out to destroy Jesus. Actually, everyone on the scene is in a state of agitation. This is the hour of darkness. No one is spared from it. Why was Judas such an easy target for the evil one? The reason is that he had allowed a sin to exist a long time within him. He was indulging in a sin and he did not struggle against his temptation. That was his mistake. He was a thief, the gospel tells us, and because he nursed this sin, his soul was fertile ground for the evil one's seeds of temptation. The door to his conscience lay wide open. His heart contained a fatal crack. It is also possible that because he was a thief, the other apostle did not like him so much. Maybe they shunned him. Maybe Judah have been suffering from frustration which is also a typical white fissure that lets the evil one in so easily. You know, when Satan sees frustration in a human heart, he takes advantage of the situation, like the coward he is, and he tries all the harder to tempt the heart of this poor guy into shutting itself off in bitterness. But what was it that pushed Judah so hard into betraying Jesus. 
Was it love of money? Was he perhaps jealous of his master? Jesus had power, yes. He, he performed miracles, yes. Everyone loved him. The only answer is that we don't know. Only one thing is clear. Judah's heart was devoured by a ruling passion. And Jesus knew this. And so he purposely stretched out to Judas a helping hand. The first time we see Jesus do this was at the Last Supper. Remember, the twelve are all there. It's the supreme moment of love. Jesus' heart is aflame with a great love. He says, How I have longed to eat this Passover with you before my death. As we hear his word during the supper, we can feel the great sweetness of love pouring out from his heart. Jesus is tortured to see what is at work in Judas' heart, and he tries to help him by saying, One of you will betray me. Jesus is troubled in his heart. Seeing the tempter hovering around Judas, he tries to bring the state of temptation out into broad daylight. He knows that exposing the tricks of the evil one will weaken the hold he has on Judas. We all know that when an evil intention is brought out into daylight, it loses its power. And this is precisely what Jesus does, warning us before we take a full step. Here, during the supper, Jesus reaches out to Judas, in essence saying to him, Listen, my child, I'm giving you a last chance now that everybody knows. It's easy for you to own up to your sin, and you will then be free. Let it go. Come clean. And what does the voice of the evil one say? Don't say a word. Keep quiet. If you confess, then you'll have to give it up. Keep your mouth shut. What's in it for you to own up? If you blow your cover, no one will understand you. You'll be singled out. My brother and sister, isn't that what the tempter whispers to our ears when we are tempted? He always tells us to keep our temptation secret in the dark because he's afraid of the light. And that's why Jesus invites Judas to confess his sin by bringing the plot into the light of day. The evil one doesn't want this to happen because he wants to prevent such a confession from ever taking place. You know, Satan tries all manner of means to make fun of confession and to make us feel too embarrassed to do it. Why? Because he knows that if we confess our sin, it's all over for him. He reigns only in darkness, and the full light of day is death to him. Yes, he knows that Jesus is the light that destroys the darkness. You know, the evil one trembles at the sight of a soul determined to go confess his sin. We all experience the same attacks of anxiety or hesitation before running to confession after any period of time. Aren't we often assailed by a thousand reasons not to go? That's typical. But Judas doesn't seize the helping hand that the Lord stretches out to him. So he will be more and more afraid of the light. Jesus had hoped that his word would bring Judas back but it didn't work. So Jesus tries again with even greater love. You know, for the Jewish people, it's that night, it's Passover, the Last Supper, 
that they call Pesach, and on that night all the guests used to recline at table on cushions, like royalty. They are royal because they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. During the meal, Jesus stretches out his hand and offers a bit of food to Judas, you remember? In the Jewish tradition, when a man wants to express uh, his love, his affection to someone, he offers him a bit of food in front of other people. And this gesture has a specific meaning. It says, in fact, that you are the one I honor today. And by doing this, Jesus, although he was aware of uh, the evil plan of uh, Judas, Jesus expressly made a public show of respect for him. Let us recall that Judas had been reproved before the others over the bathing of Jesus' feet with the perfumed oils. At that point, Jesus had said to him, For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Maybe Judas had felt humiliated by this reproof from Jesus, but here, at the Passover supper, Jesus makes a public show of honoring him. What is more, how could Jesus have handed him a morsel if Judas had not been reclining nearby? When you recline and lean on your elbow, you can't reach a person at the other side of the table. And we know that John was next to Jesus, resting on Jesus' chest. But isn't it likely that Judas was on the other side of Jesus? Jesus was like a mother, a mother who keeps her weakest child nearest to her, the one who has the greatest need. It is the sick child and not the healthy ones that she pays the most attention to. She keeps him near her out of motherly tenderness. She's anxious about him. She fears for his life and she watches over him. And in the same way, Jesus keeps Judas close by his side. Isn't it incredible? You know, during my stay with the, my community of the Beatitudes in Jerusalem, uh, one day we made a stunning discovery. During the Passover meal, which is a very important religious observance among the Jews, there are a number of ritual foods on the table. It is very likely that the famous morsel of food that Jesus gave Judas was a leaf of lettuce. The unleavened bread is not eaten until later. Now, in Hebrew, we have got to know that the word for lettuce is rasiret, in Aramaic, rasa. And the root of the word means mercy or compassion, rechem, in Hebrew. And this Hebrew word for mercy is the word used for maternal womb. So it's easy to understand. When Jesus gave Judas that morsel of food, he was actually offering him the divine rechem, mercy, like a tender mother who protects her child in the womb. And this gesture is full of meaning. Jesus is holding out to Judas in his hand all the mercy and compassion of heaven and earth. He hopes with all his being, now he will understand, now he will turn back to me. But, once again, it does not work. Judas is just absorbed in thinking about his own plans. Did he even notice Jesus' gesture? 
His mind is tormented with anxiety and he obsesses over the details of his scheme. The evil one is definitely after him. It's written, as soon as Judas has received it, Satan entered into him. And this is the crucial moment, the turning point. Because when Judas refuses this morsel of mercy, he opens up the door to Satan. Before this, he was just erased by the tempter. But now he's clearly saying no to Jesus' offer. In other words, he's saying to the evil one, come in, make yourself at home. The door is open for you. And my dear ones, we all know about this. At one moment, we feel temptation. And then at another moment, we make the decision to go along with the tempter. And at that second moment, the tempter becomes our master. Yes, it's written, Satan entered into him. So, Judas becomes the puppet, the plaything of Satan. Even his body belongs now to the evil one, his whole person. It's written, Satan entered into him and he went out. So we see that Judas gets up, controlled now by another one, by a tyrannical power. St. John in the Gospel adds, it was night. But what night? It was not only the actual dark night that spread out over Jerusalem. It was also the dark night of the soul, that depth of darkness, the black dungeon of the human heart that says no to the light. And into that night of torture, Judas sank deeper and deeper for the sake of his schemes, miserable schemes. He had become a puppet manipulated by his new master. Now, at this point, we should make one thing clear. When we say Satan entered into him, some people say to themselves, well, then everything that followed was fated. It couldn't have happened otherwise. No, this is not so. Let's not forget the passage where Jesus speaks to Peter when they are going up to Jerusalem for telling his passion that is to come. It's written in Matthew, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Oh God, forbid it, Lord. This can't happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Had Peter become Satan? Of course not nor had he irrevocably given his soul over to Satan. He still had his free will. Still, at that particular moment, Peter listened to the voice of Satan, and Satan was trying to discourage Christ from doing the will of his father. That's clear. And here with Judas, when we say Satan entered into him, the exact same thing is happening, because Judas is listening to Satan, simply so, but it does not mean he had become Satan. In another passage in the Gospel, we see Jesus speaking with the scribes and the Pharisees saying to them, You are from your father the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. But have we ever seen the devil produce human children? Of course not. But what does happen is that men submit to his will to the mind of the devil. 
speaking of Judas, Jesus also said, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Are these words of condemnation? Not at all. On the contrary, they show us all the deep compassion of God. In the Greek text, as well as the Hebrew text, the right word is not woe, but it's a cry of pain. You know, like you say in Hebrew, oi vavoy, when you feel pain in your heart, you cry, oi vavoy. And the same word in Greek, it means I suffer when I think how will be the suffering of this man. You know, I have compassion in my heart and I cry out to God. Likewise, when Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, what he means is, poor man. If only I could have spared him this terrible suffering that he's bringing upon himself. This is not condemnation. And you know, this word woe is linked also to that famous passage of the gospel in the Beatitudes when uh, Jesus say, My children, I have shown you the way of happiness. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure of heart. Little children, that is true happiness, and I give it to you. But dear children, you are unhappy indeed if you choose a different way. Likewise, in Judas' life, Jesus is kind of saying to him, How wretched you will be, Judas, if you choose to listen to the evil one. I'm so sorry for you, Judas. My heart aches for you. Come back to me, Judas, how I yearn to see you turn back into the right path and stop listening to that voice which is destroying you. Come back. You know, my dear brother and sister, this concept of fatality is contrary to the spirit of the gospel. For example, many people say, yes, yeah, Judas might be damned because Jesus said about him, oh, uh, it would have been better for him uh, not to have been born, you know. But again, we have to go back to the roots of these uh, words because even in the Talmud, which is a Jewish book, this expression is used and it doesn't mean that that person is damned. It just means that what this person did is a catastrophe. It's very, very serious. This was used at the time of Jesus with that meaning, you know. Another example, when Jesus tells us, not one of them is lost except the one destined to be lost. And here also we could see in a Judah story that he was fated to act as he did, since he's called the man who is destined to be lost. And in other translations, we find the son of perdition. But Jesus pronounced these words at the point during the Last Supper when he addressed his priestly prayer to his father before he was arrested on the Mount of Olives. And in his prayer, Jesus is presenting Judas to his father as a lost sheep. But the lost sheep implies also the found sheep at the end of the story. The lamb Jesus carries back on his shoulders. You know, the story of the lost sheep is, has a happy end. So when Jesus says this of Judas, while praying to his father, 
He's hoping to go after this lost sheep and to bring it back safe on his shoulders. He called Judas a lost sheep because he knows that Judas is listening to the one who leads souls to perdition. But this evil one is less powerful than God. Our God shows much greater power in his mercy. And Jesus continues to hope. He hopes and his hope increases as the moment of crisis draws closer. You know, Jesus had unbelievable knowledge of what was going on in Judas's soul at that moment. And this caused him terrible anguish. Jesus felt within himself all the agony, all the torments of his disciple Judas. And he even shared the pain of Judas' dark night of the soul. When we listen to the saints, they always said that the most painful part of Jesus' entire passion was the affair with Judas. And this caused his master more anguish than his slow death nailed to the cross. And we cannot forget that Jesus' capacity for suffering was proportional to his capacity for love, like us, you know. In other words, it was an infinite capacity for suffering. And Jesus loved Judas so much. And there is no fatalism in the gospel. Not one single prophecy is predetermined. Wherever there is an opportunity for the evil one, there is also an opportunity to say no to him. At this point of the story, it is still not too late for Judas. Jesus is going to keep on reaching out to him in mercy and compassion. And the way out for Judas, the path that still lies open before him, is the way of humility and repentance. While Judas is losing himself in the darkness, Jesus is starting down what we call the Via Dolorosa, the sorrowful way, that leads to his agony because of all the Judases of this world. The dark prison of Judas's heart grows deeper and blacker by the minute. His passion drives him. His sin has taken him over. He has unplugged himself from Jesus. He's actually disconnected from him. He has cut out the power of his Lord's voice calling to him that it is still not too late to turn back. And what is this voice of Jesus saying? Jesus prays. He's physically separated now from Judas. He's awaiting another encounter with him on the Mount of Olives. And of the two, Jesus and Judas, one goes to the Mount of Olives to confront hell and to win over it to love those who suffer hell in this world and to bring them back from captivity. But what is Judas doing? He's creating hell, creating his own hell. Jesus prays his priestly prayer to the Father. Father, I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave me, because they are yours. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. We all know that there is an ongoing struggle between divine mercy, I mean, extreme love who saves, 
and the evil one who leads souls to destruction. And right now, at this point of the story, the struggle is at a fevered pitch. It is the hour of darkness. Jesus and Judas meet for the last time in the flesh. We see Judas, he arrives in the garden. He has brought along reinforcement, as if he needed extra troops to arrest the lamb. What need is there for clubs and swords to arrest someone who lets himself be led like a lamb to slaughter? Jesus has just gone through his agony in the garden and it must have shown on his face because Judas is shocked when he sees him. Jesus twice asks him, Who is it you want? Maybe Judas does not even recognize him. What could Jesus' face have looked like after his agony? St. Luke tells us that his sweat was like big drops of blood dripping onto the ground. Judas peers at Jesus' face. And what does he see? He sees a bloody face. He sees the blood of the lamb. He goes up close to Jesus and he kisses his bleeding face. You know, it is well known that at that time in the Jewish world and in the East in general, there were several ways people kissed each other. On the head, on the hands, on the feet. And it is quite probable that Judas kissed Jesus on the mouth. Well, in Eastern tradition, we've got to know that a kiss on the mouth was a sign of utter trust. It was actually the sealing of a covenant. If one had business dealings with someone else, the sign that the parties were in agreement and trusted one another was a kiss on the mouth. So this kiss on the mouth of Jesus from Judas was actually a twofold betrayal. When Judas kissed Jesus, he kissed his blood. So from that point on, Judas' lips bore the mark of the blood of the Lamb. And Judas is the only person in all of history whom we know to have drunk the blood of Christ right on Jesus' body. We can, of course, imagine that Mary kissed the holy wounds of her son after his death. But in the Gospel, only Judas is mentioned. It's possible that Judas did not receive communion at the Last Supper. The fathers of the church are divided on this point. But if indeed he did not, Jesus offered to him alone that very special communion in his blood. How could this blood not have annihilated the enemy who had invaded Judas' heart? The blood of the Lamb, this redemptive blood, was in his very mouth. It's incredible what humility Jesus showed in the way he gave himself. When he gave his blood with a kiss, he gave his soul to Judas. You know, we read in the Bible that the blood is the life. It's in Deuteronomy. How could this soul not have brought Judas' soul back to his Lord? But no, Judas instead hardens his heart even more. Yet, even now, Jesus continues to hope. He'll try something else. For as long as there is life, there is hope. And at this point, Jesus turned to Judas, who had just betrayed him, and uses that extraordinary word, friend, that is, you whom I love. To the kiss of betrayal, Jesus responds with love. 
And here he gives us an example, a beautiful example that we've got to follow. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. But Judas refuses this lifeline that is thrown out to him. He goes ahead. He digs himself in further. And in a certain way, we can say that he's pleased. He has accomplished his plan. He had been a long time in the making. He had wanted to have Jesus arrested. And now he's done it. And it is his hour of triumph. Jesus is taken into custody. His hands are now bound. What a sublime irony that the one who precisely came to free us from our bonds is now put into chains. Judas has won. But after Jesus is tried and condemned, Judas will see that he has won a dismal victory. At this point now, Judas climbs down the Mount of Olives. He crosses the stream called Kedron, and then he hesitates. What has he really gained? He realized that this victory of his is empty, meaningless, like chaff in the wind. These 30 pieces of silver in his pocket won't make him happy. It's nothing. He's gone to a great deal of trouble for nothing. So he roams and wanders about, spying out what is going on with his former master. And then he realizes that he has betrayed an innocent man, that he has handed over innocent blood. He feels stricken with remorse and he suffers deeply in his soul. Well, he had belonged to the group of the apostles. He had been one of the chosen ones. He, Judas, one of the twelve, as they call him in the gospel. And you know, when one has been chosen, it's no longer possible for him to live as if this had never been so. Being chosen leaves an indelible mark on the soul. The call of God is never revoked. When one has tasted the intense sweetness of such a love, one never forgets. One is marked, and forever Judas is marked. I once met a priest in Rome, and he, this priest works at the Vatican, and his office is responsible for those priests who have been laicized. And he told me this. I can scarcely believe the number of requests that are addressed to the Holy See from priests who have left their ministry, sometimes many years ago. And they beg the Holy See for permission to celebrate Holy Mass just once more before they die. When they feel their last days approaching, they look deep within themselves and they end up begging the church authorities for the privilege of celebrating one last Mass. Oh, I can imagine how beautiful these priests must be at the altar for the last time. Perhaps more beautiful than on the day of their first Mass. And they are so beautiful just because they are wrapped in the red chasuble of divine mercy. Judas then is torn apart. He's not one of those enemies of Jesus who have never really known him. Those just don't care one way or the other. But Judas had been close, had been an intimate friend. His soul is in torment because he had known love. And now 
He's cut up from it. So, what does he do next? A horrendous blunder. He's in an agony of remorse, but instead of going to confess his sin to the friends of Jesus, he confesses it to the enemies of Jesus. And what do they say to him? So what? That's your problem. See to it yourself. Yeah, who cares? Terrible. Then Judas hurled the pieces of silver across the temple floor. It's simply an act of ultimate despair. Why didn't he go find another sinner who, at the same hour, had fallen low himself, denying his master three times? Peter's sin had also been foretold by Jesus, and Jesus had given the renegade a look, and because of that look, Peter had come back. He had seized the lifeline thrown out to him that Judas had refused. That look of Jesus had made him weep. Well, after he had seen Jesus and wept, Peter most probably went to that little house where Mary and the frightened apostles were hiding out. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was waiting for all of them to gather there. Peter certainly went there, for when one has done harm to Jesus and cuts oneself off from him openly, that is when he most needs Mary. It is the time for the mother of mercy. We can guess that Our Lady's house on Mount Zion was, so to speak, the headquarters of the apostles during that first Easter in Jerusalem. And it was, of course, open to Peter. And Peter came. He showed up. Why didn't Judas come? The Blessed Mother was expecting him. He would have been received with open arms, like Peter. So why didn't he come? From now on, I'm afraid, Jesus and Judas are separated physically. They will never see each other again in the flesh. However, Jesus is accompanying his lost disciple deep down into his hellish agony. Judas is sick with remorse. We might be tempted to think, well, that's a healthy thing, that remorse. But no, it's not. It's not. There is a huge difference between remorse and repentance. Let's compare, for example, the attitude of Peter and his sin which was denying Jesus and the attitude of Judas and his sin which was betraying Jesus. Now, which one of those two sins is greater than the other one? They are both terrible. But when Peter had committed that sin, he grasped the look of Jesus and found the way out to his sin. And this is repentance. On the contrary, Judas, after he had betrayed, when Jesus looked at him, when he kissed Jesus, he never took advantage of the way out that Jesus gave him. He kept on himself, locked in his sin, constantly in the presence of the accuser. Jesus came to call us to repentance, not to remorse. Listen, remorse is a feeling that gnaws away at us inside. At that time of uh, remorse, we focus on ourselves. We are locked in with our sin and we are tormented because the wages of sin is death. And that death is already at work within us. We are devoured by this death agony that eats away at us inside. But in the case of true repentance, it's very different. On the contrary, instead of looking at ourselves, 
We look at the Lamb of God. We are not locked in. It's an open door to the heart of Jesus. And uh, our tears of repentance, they wash away our stains. And they don't torture us. They don't burn us from inside. Maybe you've experienced that weeping in repentance is a sweet suffering. And the fruit of this is inner peace, inner anointing, whereas the fruit of remorse is torment. When we are given over to remorse, it is as if we open the door to the accuser and he likes to whisper to our ears, you see, you have sinned. And then we admit his words as the truth. And we say to ourselves, but that's true, I've sinned. It's all over for me. That's terrible. I'm lost. And doing this, we agree with his argument that is always perverse. But on the contrary, when we truly repent, we enter into an agreement with the Savior himself. And what does he say to us? My child, I came for you. I came precisely for those who are lost. I came to seek the lost sheep and to bring back the sick, the captive. You can come to me, my arms are open for you. And Jesus helps us to remember his words from the gospel. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You know, when we repent, we find ourselves back in Jesus' arm and all heaven rejoices, the angels, the saints, everybody there rejoices and dance for us. Many saints said that there is no greater source of conversion for a heart than to look upon Jesus on the cross. And this is exactly what we need to do. We need to cross that border from remorse to repentance. Many people are stuck in remorse for years and years. It's terrible. But instead of looking ourselves, or oh, in French, we have an expression that might surprise you, but it gives the idea. We say looking, no, we say contemplating our own belly button. <laughs> so, well, instead of doing that, let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the Savior and the Savior crucified. And then we are sure to be freed, freed for the torment of remorse, and we are sure to be washed in the waters of repentance, those purifying waters, you know. But, some will say, when you are mired in sin, you are no longer able to climb those steps that lead out of the prison of the heart, even though the beckoning little light shines, because you are, you, you are sort of paralyzed, you, you can't move anymore. And Judas too was paralyzed this way. When he got up from the Passover dinner, when he left, he left the table of love. He cut himself off from that meeting of love with Jesus. When he left the table, he left the church and he went out into the deep night, into the darkness. He left the communion of brothers. He left the church. For those who are in Judas' position, unable to climb those steps alone because they are too weak, Jesus offers the help of the church to escape from our prison and find ourselves out in the open air again, which means when we are too paralyzed to take a single step alone, the Lord provides an escalator. Well, of course, this is an image, but 
How could the Lord not provide for a lift for those who are too weak? Listen, to take this escalator that carries us up by itself, the only thing we have to do is go back to the brethren and say, Brothers, I'm lost. I'm done for. I've had it. Here I am. I'm falling. And yes, the church will definitely catch us if only we fall into her arms in all humility. At this point of the story, at the ultimate hour for Judas, he digs himself even deeper and deeper into his isolation. And it's very easy for Satan to whisper to him, now you're lost. And Satan makes him confused. This is very important. Satan makes him confused. You have lost with you are lost. As a matter of fact, Judas has lost everything. You know that money that he was so greedy for and he had worked so hard for it is gone. Finished. And those friends he had contacted throughout the whole business, they have proven to be false friends. You know, the whole foundation of his plan has just collapsed completely. He has lost everything and gained nothing. And Judas realizes here that his crime went much further than he had thought at first. He has completely lost the control of the situation. And my dear people, it can also happen that one of us commits a bad act out of spite, from a spirit of vengeance or envy or jealousy. And then we see that the consequences go far beyond anything we had foreseen before. Let me give an example. Saying something mean or wicked to someone can push them over the edge into a depression, for example, or even a nervous breakdown. If we make a cruel remark to someone, this can bring about a suicide even. And when such a calamity happens, Satan is sure to go on the attack and he insinuates to our ear, now it's too late, the evil is done and there is no way out anymore and it's all your fault, you see. And then we are terrified and we feel overwhelmed by the outcome of the bad thing that we've done. And it is precisely at that moment that Satan brings out his favorite tool from his bag of tricks. And let me tell you, he has many tricks. He says, now it's too late. You see it for yourself. What a liar. It's all one huge lie. Don't ever believe this. It's a lie. It's never too late. There is no evil we can commit that is irreparable. Isn't Jesus a conqueror of evil? There is a saint I love very much, is Saint Catherine of Siena. She said, When our sin is confessed with true repentance, Jesus changes it into a sweet-smelling perfume. Can you believe this? It is true. For the power of Jesus' love is stronger than the power of evil when we repent. And even evil is transformed into good by the healing presence of Jesus, of his merciful love. Okay, let's go back to our story. At this point, Jesus is still hoping, desperately hoping. Judas has perhaps only a few more minutes to live, 
And Jesus resorts here to his ultimate weapon of love because he so badly wants to counter the depth of Judah's despair with the depth of his mercy. They are no longer physically in sight of one another, but their souls are in close contact as Judas goes down, 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 down into the prison of death, into despair. I don't know if you ever heard of Marthe Robin. She's a mystic from France and she died in 1981 and she had the stigmata and for 50 years she lived the passion of Jesus every Friday. And uh, when she shared some pieces of this passion, she said that during the dark nights of Jesus' imprisonment, you know, when he was in that prison of Caiaphas, Jesus was hung up by one arm from a rope. And we can still see that prison when we visit Jerusalem nowadays. And knowing this, I can't help think that Jesus himself wanted to be with Judas somehow, sharing his faith somehow. Judas was also hanging at that moment by a rope. Judas hangs himself so that his body will die along with his soul. And during those same terrible minutes, Jesus is also hanging from a rope. And Martha Robin, who so deeply shared the pain of Jesus during his passion, also tells us that Jesus, when he was hanging there in that prison, twisted slowly this way and that, this way and that, and that this move made him dizzy. And she too could feel this dizziness, the giddiness of mercy. At this point, there are no more words between Judas and Jesus. Complete silence. But how can we not see how closely they are joined, these two? One who has hanged himself from despair and one who is suspended with love. He who is the king of kings, hanging from a rope like a criminal, spinning dizzily out of love, while Judas, who has hanged himself out of despair, struggles and kicks in his agony. Jesus lives Judas's agony with him. From the Bible, we have one psalm, number 88, who in particular may reveal how Jesus prayed when he was hanging in that awful prison. O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. This is a prayer of Jesus, and even then he still hopes, because it's still not too late for Judas. God's love reaches even to the depth of the greatest misery. In his hand are the depths of the earth. 
When Jesus revealed his heart of mercy to Sister Faustina, he said, speaking of a soul who entrusts himself to the Lord's mercy. At the hour of his death, I will defend him like my own glory. Have you really grasped this truth? The hour of Judas's death has arrived now, and Jesus is ready to defend him like his glory, twisting and turning as he is, hanging by a rope. An apostle is dying. One of the chosen is in the throes of death. And Jesus loves this apostle too much. One last time, Jesus entreats Judas to have a change of heart. He's only a few minutes from death, perhaps only a few seconds, but it is still not too late. The soul of Jesus presses against the soul of Judas. And here we yearn to cry out to him, No, Judas, you are not alone in your depths. No matter what you think, Judas, someone else is going before you into the abyss. You are not the only one to face the terrors of death. Another precedes you in the silence of blood on this holy Thursday. And Judas, you know his name. He's called the Light. His name is Life. Judas, there is still time to come back. Judas, like the woman caught in adultery, that little Teresa of Lisieux speaks of, who repented just one instant and was taken up to heaven by the angels, like the parishioners of the holy cure of ours, who out of despair threw himself into the river and repented just between the bridge and the water and was saved. Just like them, Judas, you still have enough time. You can repent in a simple twinkling of an eye. All you have to do, Judas, is cry out to God in that very instant when the death throws rack your flesh and bones. Judas, just say one word, that word that Jesus teaches you from the cross. Father, forgive them. Forgive!